the sun is setting on another beautiful day on Chiloé. It's time to kick back with a... Um, do you just want to get water? Yeah, I think that's fine. Uh, okay, por favor, una agua con gas. Ah, uh, no tienes agua con gas. Uh, agua sin gas? Oh, oh, no, no tienes agua. Uh, to totalmente sin agua? Uh, una coca, por favor? Ah, uh, okay, sí, sí, coca, gracias. <laughs> okay, well, I guess it's time to kick back with a Coca-Cola and a big bowl of Caranto. I'm Sarah Rovang. And I'm John Golden. And you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Sarah. So that little sketch we started with actually did happen during our lunch in Delcahue, a small town in Chiloé. The lunch spot there is this great building. It's shaped quite explicitly like an upside-down boat. Yeah, I have a few pictures of it up on my Instagram from a few days ago. And inside are eight food stalls, each run by and named for a different matriarch. We were there to eat Caranto, a local delicacy of Chiloé. It's sort of a, a hearty stew. Yeah, maybe kind of like a, a clam bake? I mean, I think the closest thing I know of is Frogmore stew, for those familiar with that South Carolina delicacy. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point of comparison. Yeah, so, so Caranto, the one that we had at least, has a ton of different ingredients. Ours had ham hock, chicken leg, a spicy sausage, a whole potato, some sort of boiled potato dumplings that were stuffed with beef and chicken, and these are all on top of a whole heaping pile of clams and mussels. It's quite the affair. And despite our chosen matriarch, Paola, being totally out of water, she did have plenty of Caranto to serve us. For about $9, we got all of that food and a bottle of Coke. And they also serve you some seafood broth on the side in a charmingly chipped coffee mug. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty quintessential Chiloé experience. So it's, it's been a disarmingly pleasant few days here, Sarah. And, and we weren't just down here to eat and relax. We had some serious Brooks Traveling Fellow business to attend to. And what, what was that again? <laughs> well, there were really two reasons for visiting Chiloé. The first is that Chiloé is just a really unique place. It has a lot of interesting characteristics that differentiate it from most other places on Earth. The most obvious thing, at least from an outsider's perspective, and mine as well, is the architecture. Chiloé has a very distinctive building tradition that derives from its abundance of wood and expertise in shipbuilding. So you know how last week I mentioned the very consistent style of shingle architecture in Puerto Vares? Well, Chiloé has a similar tradition, but with a whole lot more diversity. On Chiloé, all of the shingle houses and buildings seem to have slightly different patterns to them, and many of them are painted in quite vibrant colors. Yeah, I, I never thought lime green was a real go-to color for a church, but on Chiloé apparently it is. And speaking of which, within the Chilote architectural tradition, church building occupies a particularly important position. On the island and its archipelago, there are about 70 wooden churches in what is called the Chilota School. Most of these were originally built centuries ago when the Jesuits first established a missionary practice here. Since then, they've been rebuilt after earthquakes, floods, and fires. And then in the 19th century, the Franciscans showed up and took the existing tradition and transformed it to better suit the particular needs of their Catholic order. 
the Franciscans, unlike the Jesuits, are not quite so afraid of ostentation. So the Franciscan churches tended to be bigger and more heavily ornamented, a bit more complex than the original Jesuit ones. Yeah, and of the 70 or so Chilota school churches, there are some that really stand out for being particularly fine examples of this architectural type. So 16 of these churches were actually inscribed as UNESCO World Heritage Sites in 2000. And we got a chance to see, like, 12 of those? I yeah. Think? And the, the driving was incredibly pleasant, though, so it didn't feel like quite the arduous trek to see architectural heritage that we've experienced in other parts of the world. Yeah, so the architecture was a big part of the equation. In addition, though, Chiloé is designated as a globally important agricultural system. Historically, about a thousand different varieties of potato have been grown on Chiloé. And some food anthropologists even think that potato agriculture started on Chiloé rather than in Peru, as is commonly believed. This potato agriculture food way has traditionally been women's knowledge, something that has been passed down from mother to daughter. I have to admit, though, I didn't actually find the potatoes we ate on Chiloé, and there were a lot of them, to be all that different from potatoes we've had in other parts of the world. Well, I think this designation was given in part out of recognition that without intentional preservation, some of these traditional foodways could be lost. And it's easy to see how monoculture and the globalization of pesticides, for instance, could really transform the landscape of Chiloé. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it's all very interesting, but I guess I, I fail to see what this all has to do with industrial heritage. Ultimately, I mean, it doesn't. And that was actually kind of the point. The second reason I was interested in Chiloé was something that actually developed over the course of the trip. I originally picked my sites for the first half of this trip by country just because of the logistical aspects. I mean, it's easier to stay in one nation and not have to go through a bunch of border crossings and do customs a bunch of times. But as I've come to appreciate increasingly over the past several months, the story of industrialization is in many ways synonymous with the modern world order one in which we have divided the world's entire habitable landmass into sovereign nation-states. And we think of each of those nation-states as having distinct identities. Sure, and I think we take it for granted that the world has to be organized this way. It's really become so normalized that it's, it's easy to forget that this whole idea is really an artifact of the last two centuries or so. Precisely. And industrialization is kind of a paradoxical force because it at once provides the capital to sustain national economies, but at least on the scale that we are beginning to see it in the 20th century, it begins to have this sort of homogenizing, globalizing force as well. One that I would say arguably erodes or minimizes the distinctive character of various nations. So in South Africa, Japan, and Chile, we've seen that industrialization is often accompanied by a corresponding desire to preserve and celebrate a pre-industrial past. We've seen some of the outcomes of Chile's industrialized mining economy in Valparaiso and at Sewell, and we'll see a lot more examples in the coming three weeks. So for me, Chiloé was an opportunity to experience a place that seems to harbor so much of Chile's pre-industrial heritage and character. Yeah, that's right. And our visit to Chiloé was actually marked by absurdly good weather. And, and the weather here is, is famously fickle and rainy. And the average is 300 days of rain per year. And, and while it was coming down pretty heavily when we first got to the island, it soon cleared up and we had four straight days of sunshine and highs in the 70s. 
there really wasn't even a cloud in the sky until late on that fourth day. So I think our overall perception of the island was definitely impacted by this good fortune. I wonder what our takeaways would have been had it been raining all the time. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of tough to say. Regardless, I'm really glad it was so nice. Perhaps some kind of karmic reward for having to skip out on Patagonia. Yeah, I don't, I don't know though. I mean, the, this really clear weather meant we could look right across the ocean and see all of the snow-capped peaks of Patagonia taunting us from a distance. But Chiloé was a super nice place to be. So I am really glad that we got to spend the extra time there. And it's one of those places where, where you don't have to be doing any specific thing to be having a nice time. Just kind of tooling around in our rental car driving from church to church was super pleasant. And there actually was a lot of driving around to do. Chiloé is surprisingly big, something like 200 kilometers long. And there are a lot of small islands nearby as part of the sort of Chiloé archipelago. It seemed like everywhere you went were gently rolling green hills beside tranquil seas. And because it's such a dense little archipelago, you were really getting views across multiple islands in the distance, each of them really green and peaceful looking. It was actually really hard to take photographs that captured just how nice it all looked. You know, most of the time I had my wide angle lens on to shoot the churches, and so any shot I took of the picturesque coastline just kind of ended up looking like a thin line of green between two huge swaths of blue. Yeah, it definitely didn't photograph as well as it felt. And it was also surprising how much of the island was totally inaccessible. And there were various parks and reserves that took up nearly half of the island, and particularly the side of the island facing the Pacific felt very raw and untamed. So we visited the main national park on the island, which is, which is way dang out on the boonies along the Pacific, and hiked around there for an afternoon. They also had a nice museum at the park, and they even had an exhibit talking about Charles Darwin's visit to the island back in the 1830s. As a side note, I've been really interested in how much Darwin gets mentioned here in Chile. We saw memorials for him in Santiago, and he has been mentioned in basically every museum we've gone to, other than the Pre-Columbian Art Museum. Anyway, in the museum, they had passages from Darwin's diary, where he talked about visiting exactly the spot where we were, and it honestly didn't sound that much different. They've cleared some of the forest for livestock, but the national park portions remain incredibly dense and raw and just kind of battered by the ocean. Apparently, Darwin wanted to go out exploring along portions of the coast, and the local tribespeople basically had to tell him that it was impossible. Like, no one from their tribe had ever been able to go up along that coast by foot. So I think that gives some idea of what we're talking about here. The side of the island facing the mainland, though, was much calmer and more developed. And as we mentioned, there were a ton of little and honestly not so little extra islands that are part of the same archipelago. And we went out to a couple of the smaller islands, which you get to via a very robust ferry system. It, it was so odd that there, there weren't any bridges. I mean, a lot of these islands were only maybe a quarter mile apart. I don't know, maybe they were worried about earthquakes? Or the ferries are just how things have always been done. And certainly they're providing plenty of jobs. I was surprised at how cheap and frequent they were. We never had to wait more than 15 minutes for a ferry or pay more than $4 per trip. And they're clearly very heavily utilized by the local population. It was definitely more efficient and easy than I was expecting, particularly given our ferry fail last week. There was also a lot of maritime activity surrounding the shellfish farming that takes place around a lot of the islands. 
And there also seemed to be a lot of salmon fishing going on. I mean, basically the only factories we saw were like seafood processing plants. And the abundant sea life contributes a lot to the local cuisine, as we saw with the Caranto and constant availability of really good salmon on the menus. So it was a pretty easy place to say mostly vegetarian. We stayed in two Airbnbs on the island. One was a small cabin out in some fields a few kilometers outside of Ankun, which is a city of about 40,000 people at the northern end of the island, close to the mainland. The cabin was quite rustic, wood-burning stove for heat, no Wi-Fi or cell reception or hot water. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think this actually qualifies for our I did it for the architectural history segment for the week. So what made it particularly surreal was this pair of stray dogs who lived near the cabin, I guess. And one of them was an incredibly happy and eager young yellow lab, and the other was sort of a smaller collie shepherd mix. And they were really excited that we were staying in the cabin. So they, they were pretty much hanging around right near it for the entire time we were there. Uh, but they were also, um, shall we say, a, a rather amorous young couple. <laughs> um, so, you know, there we were in this cabin in the middle of nowhere, it's, it's actually quite cold at night, so we're wearing jackets indoors, and we're you know waiting for the wood stove to warm up, and we're washing the dishes you know, with cold water, and pretty much unavoidably looking out the window at this kind of mismatched pair of dogs just going to town on each other for like two days straight. Um, it was an experience I won't soon forget, uh, for, for better and for worse. Yeah, I, I really wish them the best. Uh, they seemed very happy together. <laughs> they did. So our other Airbnb was in Castro, which is the main city on the island, towards the middle, which also has a population of just over 40,000. And as Lonely Planet put it, if any town on Chiloé can be called cosmopolitan, it would be Castro. And it certainly was a, a bit more hip. The street where we were staying had a number of chic boutique hotels and restaurants, all of which were in these buildings called palafitos. They're kind of a traditional wooden house type that's particularly associated with Castro, basically houses on stilts that overlook the inlet there. Yeah, but I, I certainly would not call Castro gentrified by, by any stretch. I mean, it was, it was hip-ish, but you know, there wasn't a single coffee shop open before 1230. <laughs> certainly not. And despite the fact that it seemed like the economy on the island was in a slight upswing and definitely made plenty of accommodations to tourists like us, the whole island still maintained what felt like a really cohesive and distinctive culture. There's clearly a lot of pride in being Chilote. This was, after all, the part of Chile that resisted Chilean independence. I mean, not that the local population loved being colonized by the Spanish, but I think they rightly sensed that after Chilean independence, their lifeways would actually be under greater threat. But still today, the food, crafts, and architecture are all so distinctive that it's clear Chiloé has really retained its own identity, despite the pressures of being part of the modern Chilean nation-state. Yeah, and so I was really struck by the, the absence of industry on the island, and how much things seemed, I mean, honestly, maybe better off for it. I know it sounds cliche, and I certainly don't want to you know, gloss over or claim that there was no poverty or other issues on the island, but it, it did have a very harmonious feel. You know, there was this sort of marked lack of like a, a boom-bust cycle or any kind of vestiges thereof. You know, all of the little villages and, and homesteads had sort of a feeling of being supported in, in the sense that they'd been there for a long time doing pretty much the same thing and weren't in any great rush to change. And yeah, as you were saying, the architecture and rural fabric really were important elements of this as well. 
yeah, it, it was so interesting to me to see how there was this very little visible farming in the sense of like large fields of crops. We saw a few smaller crops, but most of the houses just had a plot of land big enough to manage a few sheep or cattle. And I guess given how remote a lot of the places were, particularly on the smaller islands, I imagine that a lot of these homesteads have to be pretty self-sufficient. Yeah, while we were driving around the island, we talked a lot about how different it felt from rural Japan. I mean, the basic geography was actually quite similar. This lush, verdant land abutting abundant coastal waters. But beyond that, the similarities were few and far between. Yeah, I'm thinking back to Hagi in, in southern Japan, where we stayed for a few days. Its population is, is actually bigger than Castro's, it's about 50,000 people, but it felt practically dead. I mean, there were so many fewer people out, basically like no restaurants, and it was honestly kind of eerie. Whereas Castro was like a big party, you know, I mean, Hagi had this very decayed sense to it. You, you could tell that there was a point in time in the past where Hagi was doing much better than it is today. But honestly, everywhere you went in Chiloé, you kind of felt the opposite, that things were kind of gradually getting better. Yeah, I mean, I think we were both quite surprised by just how solid the infrastructure was. There were plenty of dirt roads still, but those that were paved were nice and new and mostly pothole-free. And a number of the really tiny villages we drove through had new civic infrastructure projects underway or recently completed. Like, for example, there's this new boardwalk in Coraco de Valles and a new community center in Pucuadon, both communities with about 4,000 people each. Yeah, and, and there were plenty of old buildings that were falling apart, but I know this is totally obvious, there's a big difference between a decaying old farmhouse in the middle of a green field and a decaying factory in the middle of a gray, extracted, abused landscape. And, and I think this really supports the idea that, that we should be doing a lot more about industrial heritage because those industrial ruins are, are such a drain on the quality of a place. For sure. And of course, the decaying old factories are just a symptom of a larger problem, which we saw over and over in Japan, where deindustrialization seems to be causing rapid depopulation and community disintegration. And as I argue in my latest blog post for the Society of Architectural Historians, decaying factories don't have to be eyesores. There are other ways of managing them as heritage resources. So, but, but still, I mean, would you say that Chiloé was like, lucky to not industrialize then? I mean, I'm not sure that's really a fair question, because Chiloé was able to resist industrialization only because other parts of the country did industrialize. I mean, I think we can say, though, that because Chiloé doesn't have big copper or nitrate deposits, it has been able to escape a lot of the cultural and environmental degradation that the rest of the country is now experiencing. And I think the fact that the impact of industry has been minimal on Chiloé is certainly a positive contribution to the current tourism draw there. Yeah, and, and I mean, despite not feeling like a rapidly gentrifying or industrial boomtown area, I mean, it, it was clear that money was coming into Chiloé, and you just have to wonder how much of that money, and really money in Chile more generally, is coming really from the copper mining, and how stable is that income source? I mean, South America in particular, and, and of course the world more generally, is littered with economies based on extracting a natural resource that fail at some point. And our guide in Santiago said that they were expecting to get maybe another 30 years out of the copper mines, but after that, it's unclear. So at the end of the day, you know, maybe that new community center on Chiloé is still the product of a boom cycle in the north that will eventually bust. 
Still, though, it feels like Chile is insulated from a lot of the larger problems. Chile has huge problems with wealth disparity and inequality, but Chile seemed quite solidly working class. And the community still felt quite tight-knit, which contributes to that feeling of steadiness, I think. You know, quite a bit of that community, too, I think, comes out of participation in the island's Catholic tradition. I mean, whether you're for or against organized religion, Chiloé's churches are undeniably great community spaces and, I think, generators of social cohesion. Yeah, and the other thing I wonder about, and this goes back to our comparisons with rural Japan, is, you know, how much our own preconceptions played into this. I, th I think that, and maybe this is just our own, you know, misconceptions, um, but I think that we thought rural Chile would be kind of somewhere in the middle in terms of poverty and infrastructure on this trip, you know, with South Africa on one end and Japan on the other. But then, you know, rural Japan was not nearly as well off as we were expecting. And at least southern Chile was, was much better off. I mean, perhaps even better than Japan. I mean, again, this, but this, this could just be what we were expecting to see, you know, we're probably glossing over things here that we would have been more critical of and noticed more in Japan. So, I mean, I think it's just good to keep in mind that I, th I think a lot of our issues with Japan were based on expectations, which, as we've discussed many, many times in this podcast, always get in the way of appreciating things for, for what they are. Yeah, that's true. I know I certainly had fewer expectations coming to Chile, less sort of developed idea in my head of what I was expecting to see. And I think I've been more open to what I've been seeing because of that. You know, one of the things that has really stood out to me about Chile's built environment is how localized architectural traditions seem to be. I mean, there's no way you could mistake Valparaiso for Santiago, or even Valparaiso for Vina del Mar, which is only a few miles away down the coastline. Yeah, I mean, even Puerto Varas, as you were saying earlier, which also has a tradition of wooden shingle architecture, is still so different from Chiloé, which is only 40 kilometers down the road. And that was the case both in terms of building style, but also building technology. Yeah, I mean, this isn't it seemed like a purely historical, you know, fact either. I mean, a lot of these differences really seem to persist to the present day. The way people are still building even, you know, seems to reflect these older traditions. The preservation of craftsmanship seems to be a, a pretty significant factor. I mean, to be fair, I think we saw some of that in Japan as well. Yeah, but, although in Japan, I mean, it really seemed like that desire to, to build or make in, in traditional ways, you know, primary came out of this very deep cultural desire to preserve tradition, I mean, not because those ways of building or making were particularly economically efficient or, or even really made sense, uh, you know, but I mean, we've seen in Chile, particularly in Chile way, is that the persistence of tradition is really not, I think, just for its own sake, but I mean, it really just seemed to, to make sense. I mean, the, the shipbuilding that we were seeing on the island, I mean, you have these pretty remote little islands with a lot of wood, so it makes sense that guys are still going to be out there making wooden boats by hand. Um, it, was, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and I would add that in Japan, local stylistic differences tended to be a lot more subtle. Shinto shrines, for instance, have a, a basic form that basically gets repeated everywhere in the country. There might be minor differences, but you really have to know what you're looking for. Yeah, I, I'm remembering our trip to the Carpentry Museum in Hida, the little town we stayed in up in the Japanese Alps, where we learned about a regional tradition of creating brackets that metaphorically represent clouds. You know, each carpenter has his own unique signature style, and, and they've gotten increasingly more complex over time. 
I mean, once I knew about it, I could see it kind of all over the village, but I would have totally glossed right over that detail unless we'd gone to that museum. Yeah, it definitely makes you wonder how many other subtle details like that we've missed. But I think your point definitely stands that, like, regional variation in Chile has been very in-your-face. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether that trend holds true for Iquique in the northern part of Chile as well. I guess another trend that I'll be interested to chart in the next couple of weeks is what it's like to sort of get out into nature. In what way? I guess it's just been harder to actually get out into nature in Chile than I was expecting. And you hear about Chile and Patagonia in particular as being, you know, all about the sort of landscape. And, and we've been trying to go on some hikes, sort of, you know, the same kind of length or, and difficulty as, say, our, like our Table Mountain hike in South Africa or our Alpine hikes in Japan. But, you know, that kind of trail where it's maybe like a half-day trek with some interesting changes in scenery, I mean, it's surprisingly hard to find here. It seems like you're either just going for an hour-long walk on very easy terrain... Usually it seems like with some kind of educational element in the mix, like the uh, walk we did through the Tepal on Chiloé, for instance. Yeah, yeah. So, so either there's sort of a, a short kind of educational walk, or there's like a multi-day super intense trek that you have to book months in advance and probably hire a guide for and get like helicoptered into. Yeah, there seems just to be a very different kind of expectation for what kind of experience you can get out of a national park here. I mean, and some of that probably just is the, the terrain. You know, the remote parts of Patagonia are notoriously difficult to get to when you really do have to be helicoptered into them in many ways. But, you know, so building trails there is, is probably pretty expensive and logistically complicated. Yeah, but I also wonder how much of it is just cultural. I mean, we come from a culture where the idea of challenging yourself by getting out and experiencing pristine nature is kind of taken as this universal good. I mean, it's a weird thing that European-descended Americans who were so fixated on winning the West, pushing back the frontier, and bringing civilization to the furthest expanses of the North American continent are also so obsessed with camping and hiking. I mean, I guess there's also this whole anti-urban strain in American culture, though. The transcendentalists, Thomas Jefferson, Frank Lloyd Wright, all those folks who thought that the city was a corrupting influence on the spirit. I mean, I think from them we get this idea that nature is this fundamentally edifying influence. Right, and, and the, the whole idea of getting back to nature, you know, certainly also dovetails with the American mythos of sort of rugged individualism. And, and this, but the, you know, this trip has really shown me, like, just how much of these ideas are, are really just, just that. They're just kind of ideas that, as particularly for, from Americans, we take for granted. But, you know, mountains are not intrinsically there to be hiked. Yeah, even in Japan, it was the influence of Western mountaineering that really transformed the experience of mountain climbing from something that ascetic monks did to what we think of as a competitive sport. Yeah, and, and Japan certainly felt the most familiar in terms of infrastructure and kinds of trails you could expect to find in a park. I think we're also just finding a lot of things out through experiences that will guide our choices when we do make a return trip to Patagonia a few years down the line. Yeah, and hopefully then we're at a higher pay grade and can maybe hire that private guide with a helicopter, because that, that really does seem like the way to go. Okay, so while we're on the topic of cultural differences, can we just talk for a second about national holidays and events? Sure. I mean, I, I know I sure enjoyed and was quite jealous of our friend's beautiful Thanksgiving Instagram photos. Well, I guess I meant more in the countries where we've been traveling, but I actually suppose Thanksgiving could play into it as well. 
Well, yeah, right. I mean, yeah, we, we have experienced quite an array of national events and holidays kind of without expecting to or realizing that we would. I mean, we arrived in South Africa literally on Nelson Mandela Day, which is a huge thing there. And in Japan, we experienced some of the I think, numerous Japan-specific holidays, such as Respect for the Aged Day and Sports and Wellness Day. And just a few days ago on Chiloé, we experienced Teleton. Which is, I guess, not an official holiday, but it seems like a truly gargantuan national event. And it's this sort of charity fundraiser for children with disabilities run by a foundation called Teleton that, shockingly enough, runs a yearly telethon. And it's been going on since 1978, and it's, it's built this huge following. Yeah, participation in this event feels almost universal in Chile. Yeah, the amount of run-up to the event was, was quite astonishing. I mean, we saw cars, you know, just like normal everyday cars, they were sort of advertising for the Teleton, you know, with the sort of the, the white paint that you use to write, you know, just married or like mm-hmm. high school, congratulations on graduation or whatever. You know, people just with regular cars were advertising for Teleton with this, this marking on their car, you know, weeks before the actual event. And the event itself, which is held on a Sunday, seems to be a day where everyone is just out and celebrating. When we arrived in Castro, which is the capital of Chiloé, there were all kinds of different charity events going on. The firemen... The bomberos. Oh, right. <laughs> they were out washing cars in the main town plaza. And there was a local rap group performing and face painting for kids and just kind of a general festive atmosphere. Yeah, and, and despite this being a charity event, which I guess by recent years has raised, you know, $250 million or something... Um, and it has this very specific goal, but it, it seems to have kind of morphed into a more general opportunity for communities to come together. It's interesting to me how events like this are so important in the experience of feeling like you're part of a nation. I mean, national identity isn't something you're just born with. I mean, well, I guess legally it is. But in terms of a lived experience, it's very performative. I mean, we perform it when we say, get up to sing the national anthem or celebrate a national holiday. I mean, these are the things that actually give nations their feeling of cohesiveness. No, I I think that's a good point, you know, because Chile, actually somewhat like the United States, has historically been actually kind of a melting pot. You know, lots of immigrants from all over. I mean, mining and industry brought people from all over Europe and North America to Chile. And those shared sets of national practices also help to forge this idea that we've talked about in previous podcasts of an imagined community across big geographic divides. Chile is, of course, a really long country and very diverse in terms of climate and culture, as you were just saying. But the fact that the people up north and in the capital and in the south all participate in Teleton fosters this sense of national unity. Just like the Thanksgiving in the U.S., then. Basically, yeah. Well, I think that actually brings us to our regular closing segment, then, Overrated and Underrated. Let's start with Overrated this week. Sarah? Oh, this... This has been irritating me basically since day one. (laughs) They're everywhere. You can't avoid them. They're selfie sticks. Yeah, yeah. This is not just something that happens um, in very touristified places. I saw two guys who were clearly just going to work um, (laughs) on a ferry in their beat-up red pickup truck using a selfie stick to capture some photos of themselves, maybe to send home to a wife or girlfriend to let them know they're okay. Um, but I'm, I'm just so over the selfie stick thing. Yeah, that was pretty discongruous, uh, a place for a selfie stick. <laughs> How about you, John? 
Um, you know, I was I was excited, I guess, to get to, to Chile because it, it seemed like they had a lot more pizza, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of our, our major um, uh, homesick foods that we've been looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there is a lot more pizza here, but it's been consistently, like, pretty bad. Um, and yeah. I think they seem kind of proud of it, and I, I just don't think that they, they should be. So I, I think it seems pretty overrated. I'm... I'm just cannot wait to get back to Albuquerque, have some Dion's green oh, chili. It's going to be so good. Oh, man. Um, okay, so um, I think we, we might actually both have the same underrated for the week. Yeah, I think we're both going to say it's Chiloé. Yeah, just yeah. the island of Chiloé. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, despite the fact that there is increasing tourism infrastructure there, I was surprised at the relative lack of other gringos. Yeah, yeah, island. just a handful. And it seems just like... A really nice place. It's sort of like if you like New Zealand, if you like Scotland, and you like good seafood, you yeah. are definitely going to like Chiloé. Yeah, and it seems to me that you go to the Los Lagos region and, and or sort of northern Patagonia and you get all of your crazy adventure, whitewater rafting, hiking, etc. And then you go to Chiloé and just like chill out for a few days. I mean... There's just enough to do to keep you engaged, but not so much that it's overwhelming. It's just beautiful. And I have to issue sort of a, an addendum to, to, you know, last week my overrated was fairies. And I kind of said I'd never been on a ferry that I was happy to be on. But I have to say, some of the fairies that we were on were pretty <laughs> cute and charming. Yeah. And it was kind of fun just to be like you and four other cars just kind of <laughs> derping across some little channel in this beautiful bright sunny day and you know it just seems kind of laid back so maybe i'm gonna have to rethink my stance on on fairies as long as they keep showing up on time (laughs) (laughs) well that's it for now listeners don't forget to wish john a happy 30th birthday this week and join us next week when we will be exploring the beachside port town of ikike as always our music is by mark barrett happy trails amigos y amigas Mm -hmm.